Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $147 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues, Mike Kagan and Albert Grossman for our third annual Outlook podcast. Mike is portfolio manager for the appreciation strategy, and Albert is the portfolio manager for the small cap strategy. Welcome to the booth today. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. And the topic of today's podcast is the ClearBridge Economic and Market Outlook for 2020. Now, believe it or not, this is our 35th podcast, and we'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover and how we can make our podcast better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So let's kick it off and let's do a review of 2019 predictions. And unfortunately, this is going to be painful for me. <laughs> I didn't do so well in the predictions last year. Uh, and if you, you look at the predictions of all of our participants, what we did get right is that the stock market would be up 10% or more in 2019. Me, myself, and Scott Glasser, who's Mike's co-portfolio manager, had said that would be the case. And obviously, with the gains at 25% plus right now, I think that's a, probably a pretty one, one that we could say is going to be on the record books. We were also correct on oil prices staying below $75 a barrel, but we did have some misses. The first one was the direction of the dollar, which has stayed stubbornly strong, uh, but uh, of course, a more moderate pace than what we saw in 2018. All of us thought that Fed policy would be more hawkish with rate hikes rather than rate cuts. And we thought that the 10-year Treasury yield would go higher rather than dramatically lower, ultimately settling below 2%. So taken in aggregate, we're batting less than 500 as prognosticators. If we were in baseball, we'd be in the Hall of Fame, but from a prognosticator standpoint, that's uh, not the best batting average. And I know, Albert, this isn't too surprising to you, as uh, you've recently published a paper on how precise predictions is a, a loser's game. So let me start with you, and what consensus market predictions are you following that you think will most likely prove wrong in 2020? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And um, I think we wrote on our, our recent paper, we, uh, we cited the seminal book by Philip Tadlock in 2005 and his continued research on predictions and how difficult to be consistent in this type of macro and other type of political or a couple of examples in the book of how difficult it is to make predictions. And wasn't it Yogi Berra that says it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future? <laughs> if he wasn't him, it's right. <laughs> uh, whoever said that. But it's something that we as a team, as, uh, as analysts and portfolio managers, we try to avoid. We're certainly quite aware of the macro issues and concerns that may be in the marketplace, but we're really trying to get down to the micro level of individual securities. First of all, trying to understand what's discounted in the price of the stock. And second, understand on a probabilistic basis what the value of a corporation may be in the future and take into account those type of events. So instead of trying to predict with any level of certainty what may, what will happen, just trying to understand what may happen and the impact on that, on individual securities as well as our overall portfolio. So that is our approach. I don't know who's going to be right next year. And ultimately, it's not being right about the macro for us. And uh, the example that's cited in, in, the, in that paper you mentioned is even if you do know what's going to happen, 
the consequence of it is the most important step. Of course. And as stock markets are complex and adaptive, it's very difficult to understand that. So the example we cited in that paper was the steel stocks. If you go back and you knew for certain that Trump was going to win and you knew that he was going to follow through in his insistence of putting tariffs, especially on steel, I guess you would buy steel stocks and you have been right for about two months. So they outperformed for, from the election till the end of the year and they've underperformed tremendously since even though every single one of the tariffs and more that were expected did get put in place. Not only they've underperformed since then, they actually down since January 2017. Oh, wow. So it's not about... Raging bull, by the way. Yeah. So for us, is is thinking about things like that. So it's just not what is going to happen, but also what the consequences may be. So I think you can say that broadly about consensus. So when Trump won, I think consensus thought it would be negative for the markets overall, but we all know Briefly, that yes. Markets were down for about, what, a half a day? <laughs> Something like <laughs> that. that. And they never looked back. Mike, let me move over to you. Um, do you like any contrarian positions right now in the, any of the stocks that you target? It's funny that you should use the word contrarian related to appreciation. It's not really what we're all about, at least when it comes to stock selection. So we like large-cap, high-quality stocks, the types of companies that Warren Buffett would say have a moat around them, so companies with strong balance sheets and defensible market positions, and they're not usually contrarian positions. They're usually kind of more consensus positions. That said, we do trade in a very contrarian fashion. And so when the market is really frothy, and especially when it gets ever more narrow and it's only the big caps that are outperforming, we will tend to cut risk and tend to raise cash. And when everybody's really afraid and you have a 90% down day, a day when 90% of the stocks in the market are down, that's a day when I'm going to be in Scott's office with a buy list and he'll have a buy list and we'll be taking cash away and investing it. Sure. One, one thing that I think can be contrarian is that you can get multiple expansion from here with the S&P 500, um, right? If you look at every market peak going back to 1946, right before recessions, on average, the trailing PE traded at a 23% premium to the previous five years. Um, today, the trailing PE is at actually at a discount to the last five-year average, which means if you go back to history, that means that multiples could go up just to get to that 23% premium five or six turns from here. So people generally think that the market is fairly priced, but as we all know, it usually overshoots at the very end of an economic cycle. Now, obviously, one of the big questions I think that continues to impact markets and the economy is the likelihood of a recession in 2020. I, obviously, I have some comments on the, the subject matter, but Mike, I'd like to get your take on the chance of a recession this year. And maybe can you opine on the importance of the yield curve inversion that we saw this year? Is it a valid signal still, just given how central banks have tampered with yield curves this cycle? Well, this is all about prognostication. And Jeff, you're an economist and awesome at it. But the yield curve is the best of a set of pretty unreliable indicators about recessions coming. But it is the best. And so it's certainly a bell ringing that you have to pay attention. All that said, even when a recession occurs, on average, it's about 14 months or more after the inversion first happens. And the market usually does quite well up until the time when the recession actually occurs. It's a long leading indicator. Right. And so since the inversion happened at the very end of March, early April, that means that we would be talking on average uh, probably sometime late next spring that you would have a recession if one were to occur. And I think actually given that the U.S. consumer is so very strong, that unemployment is, is so low, 50-year uh, low in unemployment, my feeling is that 
probably it's going to be a longer gap between the inversion and when you actually have a recession, not a shorter one. So the danger in the market is always being too early. You see something, you think it's obvious, and then you get burnt because you act too soon. And I think right now it makes sense to still be invested in the market. Yeah, the common narrative that why this time is different with the yield curve is that you have all of these overseas buyers coming and buying 10-year treasuries, driving it down and causing that inversion. But if you take hedging costs into consideration for European and Japanese buyers, they actually lose money on that trade. And that actually very much rhymes with the U.S. tick data that looks at foreign flows in and out of the U.S. And you actually saw outflows from treasuries over the course of 2019. So it's not this crossover buyer that's causing that distortion. It's really just general fear of slowing U.S. growth and, and rising recession risks. You know, maybe the four most dangerous words in finance are this time is different. If you think about it from a yield curve perspective, this time was different in 06 when Bernanke was saying it was the global savings glut that was causing the inversion. It was different in the late 90s when, believe it or not, we had a budget surplus and the lack of treasury issuance was causing that inversion. But I'm I'm with you, Mike. I think that the yield curve has signaled that recession risks are elevated. Uh, But in our dashboard, it's the sixth ranked variable out of 12 just like you said, because of the consistency of when it inverts. When it inverts, it tells you absolutely nothing about the market peak and the timing of the recession. Back in 06, right, the yield curve first averted in January of that year. You didn't have a market peak for 20 months. You didn't have a recession for a full two years. So yes, it says that Fed policy is too tight. They may have caused a mistake with the double tightening that they've uh, pursued over the previous three years. And uh, the dashboard, quite frankly, rhymes with what you're saying, that 14-month time frame. Uh, Our dashboard is saying that the first quarter of 2020 is really going to be the show me moment of this cycle and whether or not we're going to end up having a recession. And then I think the other part of your question is what things am I watching right now? I think that the critical thing for this economy is that unemployment rate. As long as the U.S. consumer has got a job, as long as jobless claims are low, as long as real wage growth is good, we're not having a recession. So at this point, if you push me, I'd say no recession, but nonetheless, <laughs> I don't think it's a sure thing. It, it's also often the case that unemployment looks just fine for quite a long time after the yield curve inverts. So we have to be careful here. Yeah, it's a probability game, right? And uh, the dashboard is signaling a 50-50 probability of a recession uh, over the next 12 months. Um, one of the areas that, that is very strong that you allude to is the consumer. Out of those 12 variables, all four of those are green. And if I want to see a green section of the dashboard, it certainly is the consumer because they make up 70% of our economic activity. And one of the last indicators to turn is always going to be jobless claims. Every time jobless claims have increased year over year by 12%, you've always had a recession, and it's always been three months away from that recession. So a great hit rate, a lot of precision of the timing of the ultimate recession. And I've been watching those jobless claims numbers very closely. They spiked a couple of weeks ago because of the GM spike, but now they've come back down to the lower trading range of 210,000, which says doesn't mean recession risks are away. It just means that we're not at the doorstep quite yet. There's there's still a little bit of tread left on the tire. Yeah, I mean, for us, similarly, the, the consumer, obviously, given how much of the economy that is, is something that we pay attention to. As far as evidence, we can see no evidence of slowing spending in total. You see pockets of weakness, but... Yeah, I mean, look, look, if you look at consumer balance sheets, right, household leverage is at the same level that we saw back in 1985. So 35-year lows that we're talking about here. The savings rate is back up to 8%. So even if we have this slow patch, which is part of our core message, hopefully the consumer will be able to to make it through because they've saved for a rainy day. Their perception on debt accumulation has changed since 2008, ultimately. 
Yeah, it is ironic that the debt concern in the economy is actually at the companies, not at the consumer right now. It is. It's very much so at the, the company level. Can they continue to do share buybacks, right? I mean, I'd arguably say that the biggest driving force of this economic cycle has been monetary policy that's been extremely loose, but also this move over to and preference for share buybacks throughout this entire cycle. So if companies stop taking on debt and they don't have as much capital available, buybacks dwindle down, uh, maybe the biggest propellant of this market cycle will start to come to an end. And uh, there's no evidence that buybacks are dwindling at this point, but you got to think how much more buybacks can continue or what pace can continue over the next couple of years. Now, let's talk about some other things that, uh, that could drive the markets here. And I, and I think both of you will have very different perspectives on this next topic, large versus small cap. Obviously, there's been a, a, a bit of a deviation in performance this year. Small caps have underperformed by about 4% here in 2019, which is unusual in a, a market that's been this strong. And, and Albert, maybe I'll start with you. What catalyst do you think can lead to outperformance as we make our way into 2020? Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly our small caps have underperformed here today. They have underperformed tremendously since September of 18. And if you look at the history, I mean, we looked recently at a, at, at a study that goes back to the 1930s. And over time, small caps have done well relative, but there have been long periods of time where that has not been the case. Certainly, the mid-90s to the early 90s into the dot-com boom, that was a terrible time for small caps. I don't know. I, I have some speculation what may have happened recently, but it's purely that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're all about speculating yeah. here on the podcast. I mean, earnings growth, earnings growth for small cap have lagged large caps since the middle of last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's probably a good indicator. And then overall market capital expenditure growth has declined. If you look historically, small cap companies have tended to do better than large cap in times of increase in CapEx. Okay. They tend to be where the capital is spent. So that those are the two things that we've observed as a potential reason. And obviously, this uncertainty created by trade wars, even though there was this view that uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act would have propelled CapEx um, when trade wars started to erupt, it created that uncertainty, and CapEx has been yeah. outright negative yes. uh, here recently. Very recently, it's been negative, and that, that, in my opinion, has been an issue. Historically, it's been a driver, as I said, for a small cap, so that's been an issue. As for CapEx, I don't know. They all look, I mean, you look at some of the surveys of CEOs and CFOs, they, they seem to be in not in a great mood to spend, at least not relative to the consumer. So so maybe that doesn't change that that quickly. But earnings growth, at least uh, when you look at consensus estimates for the Russell 2000, uh, starting to possibly turn next year. So that could could lead into that. For us as investors and for hopefully for our investors and our funds and our strategy, thinking long-term, thinking the long-term opportunities, uh, we think small cap is a part of, of the market that people should be exposed to. It's really where a lot of innovation comes from, uh, a lot of growth in the future. And, and future Amazons? Many of those start as small caps, although we have had in this cycle a difference in terms of when companies come to market and many of companies that would have come to market a lot earlier have been funding the private market. So that, that is a bit of a change in some areas. Uh, in other areas, they've come to market much more quickly. Uh, the second piece is for companies that do have an opportunity to deploy more capital at good returns, if you are a smaller cap company, it's a bigger impact relative to enterprise value. So the compounding of, of value can be faster over time. So those are reasons, in my opinion, to remain investing in small caps over time. Uh, there will be periods, there'll be extended periods of times that large cap may lead and 
uh, this may continue on for a little while here. Mike, any thoughts? I think Albert makes a very good point, which is I think that small cap companies have the advantage that they generally have more opportunities to invest cash flow at high returns than large companies do, or at least reinvest in the business. It's very difficult for me as a large cap manager to find companies that have high returns and can invest all of their cash back into the business. That's one of the reasons why share repurchase are great in the market. When you do have a company like that, so an Ecolab or an Air Products, those would be companies that uh, have that opportunity, and I think they've been terrific stocks for exactly that reason. I think maybe the reason that the big caps have outperformed so much this cycle has been maybe coining a word here about the oligopolization of the... Try saying that three times fast. I could not. (laughs) You got it right the first time. I'm not going to make you say it again. Of the economy. So we're seeing increasing concentration, and there are many, many markets, especially in the tech markets, where the degree of concentration of the big companies is so very high, and it's resulting in enormous operating margins. But operating margins can only grow so much, and when your operating margin goes up by a percent and you're at 10%, that's a 10% increase in earnings, and if it goes up... Uh, 1% when you're at a 30% margin, it's only a 3% increase in, in earnings. So at some point, the pendulum was whipped back and the small caps were outperformed the large. And this uh, concentration, more oligopolies that are out there, is some people say is one of the reasons why you've had a flatter Phillips curve and this lack of wage growth, even though you have a really tight market cycle. But that's a conversation for a whole nother podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, another question that I get from uh, all of the clients that we speak with is growth versus value. Obviously, value had its time in the sun here very uh, shortly in August and September, but uh, it has reverted back to growth. And if you look to year-to-date numbers, growth is leading on a small, mid, and large cap level. Do you think value has any sustainability from here, or do you think it's still going to be a growth world? Mike, uh, uh, I'll start with you. I think it is probably, given where we are in the economic cycle, likely to continue to be a growth world and not a value world. There'll come a time, it'll be after we have the next recession, but... There's ample capacity in most of the materials and energy and and cyclical parts of the economy. And so you usually need high capacitalization in order to get pricing and in order to get a real cycle in those deep value type stocks. And so I'm afraid while if the economy does accelerate, if we see that we don't have a recession, there could be a brief period where they perform well. I think that the large cap growth companies are likely to do better, at least till we have a recession. And I would argue that the reacceleration that we're going to see, if it is a slow patch, won't be a 2016 reacceleration, 2012, 2009. It'll be something much more muted just because we are later in the cycle and the amount of easing just isn't to the degree of what we saw in, in those previous cycles. And most importantly, valuations aren't really at, at rock bottom levels at this level. That's for sure. Albert? Yeah, uh, the only thing I would add, I mean, as a, uh, our strategy is a, small cap core strategy. So we do uh, use the exact same process to evaluate companies across the spectrum. We don't really like the standard definitions of value or growth. Sure. Um, so right now, our lens is more of what we find in the marketplace that we find to be on the value. And when we look at the highest growth companies, that's been a very difficult area for us, something that we historically have been exposed to. But when we look at how they're being valued, and how much extrapolation of future growth is already discounted in stocks, it's become quite difficult for us to, A, continue owning what we owned, and B, even more difficult to find new opportunities. So it's the first time in the history of the strategy that we're actually underweight 
uh, technology, specifically on the software side. Um, and we continue to be on the wait on the healthcare side, specifically on the biopharma, which is in small cap world is all very high growth, very early stage type of thing. So binary. Uh, uh, for the most part, yeah, definitely quite the, so the case, but uh, a lot of M&A continues to be the case. This week we, were, we had three small cap biotech companies be acquired for premium somewhere between 100 and 170 percent. Um, these are companies in phase one, phase two trials for the most part without a prospect of having a product in the market for at least the next several years. So there's a lot of capital chasing, what is perceived to be the growth in the future. And um, we just see some areas of potentially too much risk for us to take. Now, Mike, I know that um, obviously you have some potential opportunities that, that you're seeing from a stock and sector perspective. Is healthcare a viable contrarian play? I know we've used the word contrarian before. I think Albert thinks biopharmaceuticals, at least in the small cap space, may not be the most attractive at this point. But do you uh, do you see something different in the, the large cap? From a valuation and quality and sustainability of cash flow standpoint, yes. From a political risk from the next election, no. So I think it's a very, very hard call. We're basically in line with the market in our bets in the healthcare sector because we really do find a lot of uncertainty overhanging us from whether, in particular, Elizabeth Warren gets elected. So we'll be watching that very closely. If Elizabeth Warren doesn't get elected, the stocks are probably buy. Yeah, well, I will say this about biopharmaceuticals. The last two times they traded below the market multiple was 93 when Hillary Care was being discussed, and then also in 2008 when Obamacare was being discussed. Obviously, coming out of those periods, the worst wasn't realized, and you saw a re-rating higher. But I do agree that there are uh, some more significant headwinds uh, this time for the sector because yeah. both parties have uh, moved towards being a little bit more open to price controls. But also a, a very large difference between small cap biotechs and large cap biotechs with the tremendous amount of cash flow that they produce in the large cap world where, as evidenced by the three deals I cited, using the small cap ones as some sort of outsource R&D and just acquiring those for future growth. So yeah, potentially in some areas, I mean, we don't have as much exposure to the steady cash flows of those companies that are more potentially at risk for a pricing standpoint, at, at least not yet. Now, we mentioned political risk, and I'm just, this is the third rail, I'm going to talk about it because this is all that's on the the media loop 24-7. Albert, how are you adjusting for election probabilities in your process, i.e. kind of yeah. what are consensus markets predicting that are most likely to prove wrong at this point? Yeah, I, as I said earlier, from a general standpoint, we pay attention and we try to understand what's discounted. Well, obviously, we we read broadly about it and we certainly track what some of the markets, some of the predictions are for who may win or not. We try to incorporate the widest range in our estimates and take advantages of opportunities that, again, don't seem to be discounting any potentially good outcomes or discounting some very bad outcomes. So the, the example of site is a, is a company we've owned the portfolio for quite some time called Great Television. It's about a $2 billion market cap company that owns and operates TV stations in 93 markets. 95% of those markets, they're number one and number two. They reach nearly 27 million households today. And a lot of their televisions are in the key battleground states. And this is a company so that- they're going to be very profitable over the next uh, 12 months? <laughs> this Every two years, they have a cycle, just like any TV station, there's a cycle around the election. This company has historically generated the highest revenue per TV household during a political year. 
So that's all interesting. I guess if people want to invest based on what spending may may happen and you see the stock go up sometime, like the other day when Michael Bloomberg announced that they're going to spend $30 million in a month uh, in, in TV advertising. So certainly they got their share of that. But here's a company that in this year, in a non-election year, will have $3 per share in free cash flow as a $20 stock. It trades at six times EBITDA in enterprise value to EBITDA. And this is in a non-election year. In an election year, the free cash flow is going to go north of five. So the way we view the world, this company's priced as if the future is worse than even a non-election year. And I understand there are concerns about the future of television, and there are concerns about advertising in general. And those are the things that, in our opinion, are overly discounted. In um, First of all, they are dominant in their markets. They're less dependent on advertising than ever before because of retransmission rates. And even if people do cut the cord, depends where they go. If they go to over-the-top providers, that they, but they still want their local channels, companies like Great Television continue to receive their revenue at least 100%, if not more, depending on the specific agreements they have with the local providers. So those are the type of things. I mean, we did not invest because of election. They are a great beneficiary of it, but that's just an example of how we go about trying to sort things like that. So it sounds like it's a stock that's a win-win no matter who's our president in 2021. (laughs) Mike, any thoughts on election risks or political risks uh, in the upcoming year? The key thing is whether the election risk, I mentioned healthcare as as an issue. The problem that's overhanging healthcare is that its share of GDP has been climbing forever. I think that's 17 or 18%, something like that. And it's getting pretty big right now, and it's getting to be a problem. And so at some point, it's not just going to slow, it may be capped. And so we're worried about with Elizabeth Warren is that maybe that's the signal that it's actually going to be capped. And so that's a secular change, and that's a big deal, and that can really affect investment decisions. If it's a more temporary issue, then we're not that likely to go and adjust our portfolio very much for an election change. Uh, The one thing I'll say is that uh, you've never had a Democratic nominee lose both Iowa and New Hampshire and get the nomination. So obviously you need to come strong out of the gates. But I think there's a long way between now and ultimately who's going to be sitting on the Democratic side of the, the table. The one dynamic that I do think is interesting, though, is that if you look at all post-World War II presidents, there's only been three that didn't get reelected. It was H.W. Bush, Carter, and Ford. And those were the only three presidents that saw a recession within two years of the election and the only three presidents that saw a material rise in the unemployment rate the year of the election. So Let me give you a fourth oh. who just simply withdrew his candidacy, which was Johnson. But you had your recession within two years. You had... A scare there. So he fits your pattern. He does fit the pattern. So trying to handicap who's going to win, it may not be who's the Democratic nominee. It may not be a particular view on a policy. It may ultimately come down to whether or not we have a recession next year. I think that's really interesting. And I, and it gives me hope that um, the Trump administration recognizes this and we'll get some sort of trade truce over the next week where maybe the economy won't continue to deteriorate because of escalation, but we can at least get into a holding pattern where visibility is restored and consumer confidence can stay elevated and maybe business confidence can draw from here. But I, I think that's all the time that we have here for today. Mike Albert, thank you so much for joining me in the booth. Thank you. It was great. Thanks for having us. Jeff, thank you very much. Albert, thank you. Thanks. And I want to thank all of you for joining us to hear our thoughts about the upcoming year. 
Um, It does remain our view that the secular bull market that began in 2009 is alive and well as investors continue to fight yesterday's war. However, if the Clearbridge recession dashboard moves to red and a recession ensues, we believe it's going to be a shallow one, economically speaking, due to the lack of excesses that have built up across the economy. Regardless, though, if the 2020s are anything like what we've experienced this past decade, should make for a very interesting ride. From all of us here at Clearbridge Investments, have a safe, healthy, and happy holiday season and a new year. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of December 11th, 2019, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clibber's Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. 